This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Proden, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. This is episode 99. I want to do something special for episode 100. I have no idea what that is. Today's show will be common rule, what it means for school safety drills. But first of all, I want to do something that I did not do in the previous podcast, and that is thank my sponsors. Thank you to the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California, the405media.com, starring the League of Extraordinary Podcasters, including Aaron Clary, Larry Roberts, and Readily Random. Thank you to John Grant and the405media.com. Also, thank you to Radio and Podcast. I am part of that lineup, radioandpodcast.com with Jim Mallard. Check that out. Always an interesting and new listen. So many fascinating shows that he has. Radioandpodcast.com. Also a promotion for my book, School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America. Again, Schools of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America, available from Barnes & Noble, from Amazon, Target, Walmart. Hey, type it in. You will find it. You can pre-order it right now. Officially ships and will be in stores on Saturday, August 10th. It's doing very well in Japan, Portugal, Hungary, France, Spain, Sweden, Great Britain, the United States, and so many other places. School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America. Hey, if you want the truth about school safety, rhetoric-free, empirical research, and you want to learn, you want to have perspectives about school safety that nobody has taken before, we're going to talk about simulated annealing. Hey, that sounds complex. Really? Well, not really. If you've ever had a flight delayed and you've had options to take a different flight to get somewhere, or maybe a bus or something like that, that's the process of simulated annealing. Basically, you're presented with different options suboptimal options, and you pick from those to try to get to your destination. That kind of thinking can make a world of difference in school safety. I've argued all along that simply purchasing the book by Sir Baden-Paul, Scouting Games for $20, published in 1908, still used by military snipers and military scouts to this day to increase situational environmental awareness. 
would do wonders to increase school safety. What do we have? We have focus lock. We have kids looking seven hours a day on their phones. And it's focus lock where they're walking into um, signposts and things like that. So we've got to break down these core issues. And we can do that by you buying School of Air's Rethinking School Safety in America. It's a book, folks, that I could not have written if I had not retired from a career in education. So some anecdotes. My air conditioner on my new Buick LaCrosse was not working. Um, and when I took it into the shop, of course, it's all warranty work because it's a new vehicle. Uh, beautiful. Love the vehicle. Um, but yeah, you know, we get a warm day for once, right? Down here, it's been this incredibly cold spring, cold winter. Um, a lot of rain, just overcast and get a couple warm days. It was 83 degrees. I put the air conditioning on and nothing's happening. And I'm pretty sure I got it right, but I'm not 100% sure that I've got it right because the car is much more complex with the interface than the previous car that I had. Um, so when I took it in, I said, you know, I think I had this set correctly and nothing was happening. It wasn't cooling down. So um, they, they came out at the dealership and they said, yeah, you know, um, it, it was low on refrigerant or whatever, and we fill it up and we think everything's fine. But if it does leak out again, you know, we'll, we'll handle it. We've got a lot of warranty left on the vehicle, obviously. And then they, they, they asked this question. They said, you know, when you picked up the vehicle and we went through it and did the test drive and everything to show you all the features, the air conditioning was working then, right? And I was thinking, well, yeah, kind of, because the day I picked it up, it was minus 33 degrees Fahrenheit. So I think they would just kind of misplace the day that I picked it up versus the day that I had it in for its first oil change, because, of course, you know, we wouldn't be talking about air conditioning when it's minus 33 degrees Fahrenheit. The air conditioning will work well under those situations no matter what, right? Minus 33 degrees. So they were also showing me a few things. I said, you know, you have some settings here in your car. You can change how it rides. Basically, there's a sport setting, which we have it on now, and it's been on there. But you can go to touring because I said I'm going to be doing some longer trips this summer. And I think there's a few others. And I, I, I went through and I was amazed that it actually had the option for 1996 Dodge Intrepid, which I owned. I owned a 96 Dodge Intrepid. Um, and the commercial I remember for the Dodge Intrepid was that the wheels were moved to the out, outer parts of the car, and this provided stability. And also that if you scratch the paint, the paint would self-seal, which seemed pretty amazing, both of these claims. But, you know, back then I was thinking, well, cars have been around for about 90 years and this whole thing of like moving the wheels to the corners for stability, like nobody came up with that before. Like that's brand new right now. And also the self-sealing paint wasn't quite sold on that. But the problem with the Intrepid, the Intrepid had a lot of power, had a very unreliable engine, had a great big trunk that you could sleep in. So that was a plus when the car would burn its engine out. But um, yeah, definitely with the Dodge Intrepid, the, the ball joints on the wheels will wear out very fast. So part of having these wheels like so far out from the car 
Um, it just put a lot of strain on all the joints. It was just a bad design, like it didn't last. So, so yeah, I actually pressed the button. I'm like, let's do 1996 Dodge Intrepid. And it's like, it will take one minute to degrade the vehicle to that level. And it's just kind of going through. So, yeah, that actually didn't happen, right? There's no 1996 Dodge Intrepid button on there. So, I don't know. I'm going to stick with Sport. I'm not going to switch to Touring or... I, there's a few others in there, which is all cool, I guess. Adjust the suspension, and it has a eight-speed transmission, so it adjusts the points on where the transmission shifts. Also, um, things I really don't care about <laughs> at all. Like I said, I like the car. It's just like fine-tuning it to this level. It's yeah, it doesn't mean anything to me. So. Um, I'm kind of a storyteller, and I have one of my coworkers. And I say coworkers because I still am working through the next um, three weeks and then officially turn in all of my materials and, and become a retired person. Um, but I, I was telling one of my coworkers, who's older than I am by maybe 15 years, I said, well, the TV show Chips... Uh, California Highway Patrol. Um, so the two guys on the motorcycles on the 405 in Los Angeles, you know, like 10, 12 lanes wide. But I said, you know, the thing with chips, I said uh, it was filmed outside of Poinette, Wisconsin on Interstate 39 back in the 70s. So there were incentives to do it because, um, you know, the state was trying to get uh, more movies filmed here and TV shows and stuff like that. But I said, it, it was also difficult because, you know, we have winter and it's cool and we don't have a lot of sunlight. So they really had about 60 days they could film this. And they had to film like two, three episodes a day. It was crazy. So this lady said, uh, really? Like, I had no idea. And obviously, completely not true, right? Because it's like a, just a three-lane interstate. And back then, it might have been a two-lane interstate. And it's just kind of woodsy and stuff like that. Um but I just, I'm going with the story. And then I, I said to her, I said, well, you know a lot about interstates and construction. You know what's going on. Like you've followed in the newspaper and that. So it's kind of this like validating the other person or idea. Like, yeah, you know this, right? And like, she's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I just, I've seen that where on TV or something they talked about how the state's trying to get more movies and and uh, television shows to come here and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know all that stuff. So I'm like, it was pretty cool. Um, I'm sure, though, for the people who are local, it was just a real pain of trying to, to – navigate without the interstate available to you when they when they shut it down to you know to film the episodes but I'm like kind of a cool part of history right so and then I just move on of course none of that's accurate right just having a little bit of fun so um a must read for parents teachers and taxpayers Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, A brave demonstration of speaking truth to power, School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, 
now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. I had a little bit of trouble with the podcast about the Notre Dame Cathedral fire. Um, that one did get removed. Um, obviously, I think it was the conspiracy theory tag that might have done it. Um, I'm still convinced that the Notre Dame Cathedral will never be rebuilt because of the cost of lead abatement. Um, they're not receiving the pledges right now that they uh, thought they'd be getting, you know, the billion dollars. They're nothing close to that. And I don't think there would be incentive to give those donations. And here's why. If you have thousands of people who start to show symptoms of lead poisoning from this 500,000 pounds on the roof being vaporized into a cloud and eventually cooling and dropping over different parts of the city, dusting it with lead, um, those people are going to want access to that billion dollars to for their health care, right? So I think you've got a lot of variables at play here. I talked in the last episode about the city core tower um, and how the cover-up for that worked. And I'm just saying, I think there's um, a lot that's known about the lead poisoning in Notre Dame, um, you know, the cathedral, but that's not going to be public for quite a while. And I'm just going to leave it at that because I don't need this video taken down and to rework another one. But yeah, it's kind of new here for the safety dock. Also gotten to a little bit of hot water when I was talking about the Hawaii missile alert. Um, that's maybe, what, about a year ago. So it's one of those things. Um, but let's talk about school safety rules. So school safety has been in the news. There have been um, numerous articles. Uh, people have contacted me. Um, asking about safety. I was just contacted by a newspaper last week that doing a multi-paper feature um, on school safety grants and how schools are spending their money. question that they had for me as the school safety expert is um, why, why are we not seeing more consistency across these districts that we're talking to? They're kind of giving us responses that don't match their neighboring district. So, like, um, you know, why have you chosen to spend your money on mental health needs or on bollards or whatever? Um, so it's a very astute reporter that contacted me and said, you know, this isn't adding up. Not that people are doing something wrong, but there just isn't consistency. So how does this really work when people apply for the grants? I said, well, it's, you know, first of all, most of the safety grants – in our state, Wisconsin get funded, like 95% of them from the Department of Justice get funded. And there was actually money left over with the first round. And I said, people don't have to do a big rationale and here's the research behind why we need whatever, whatever. They just put their list together and it kind of gets funded. You know, that's the way that it works. Um, the DOJ is very careful not to fund positions. So if it's going to be a counselor, a psychologist, or social worker, well... You don't add somebody like that for a year and then take them out of the school. I mean, if the school has no way to, to pay for it after the grant is exhausted, right? So um, so we talked about that, and, and I, I laid out some really great talking points. I'm like, go back to these people and ask like these questions. Help me understand um, how you identify that a student would ben benefit from mental health services. Help me understand then what services you match to that student, how you'd 
measure a change from baseline and how you also determine that the student no longer requires the services. Get them to talk about that. Um, and then, you know, I came in and kind of laid out how these grants work. And, and then the question from they had for me was, well, what would you do if, if you were overseeing all of this? And, and I said, well, you know, I'd require a prioritization matrix for schools, which sounds complicated. It's not. It's basically comparing one thing to another, one thing to another, until you just come up with, this is more important than this. And I said, most of these schools probably have needs for two-way radios um, that go above the needs for bollards being put in sidewalks in front of entrances. So two-way radio, um, you can com communicate throughout the building if there's a need. Let's say also that there's a medical need, student has a seizure on a playground, you can communicate that back to the office or to many people at night. You could have your custodians communicate between buildings. You have to do like a repeater. But anyway, this really works well. And two, if you have to leave the area with the new two-way radio systems, you can typically communicate easily for a few miles. So um, that was just something that I brought up. School safety rules. So basically, let's talk about how school safety rules are mandated. When you ask that question, when I ask that question as a safety expert, I'll start that out right away when I consult, uh, just to get some baseline with, with my audience, with the people that I'm working with, and I'll say, you know, how much of this is federal, how much of this is state, and how much of this is local, from what you know. Um, and the reality is that it, there are no federal mandates for school safety right? Um, for school safety plans and school safety drills. That's not from the feds. The feds default that to the states. So they tell all 50 states, um, this is your responsibility. You decide how you want it done and then let your districts know. And what a lot of the states do is then they just tell the districts, you need to do X number of fire drills or intruder drills or tornado drills. And then like, just let us know when those were completed. Not how to do them. They don't tell them that. And as of May 2019, 43 of 50 states required schools to have safety plans and conduct safety drills. 43 out of 50, meaning seven states did not require that their school districts have any type of drill. But most of these school districts in these seven states still had drills. The districts universally, or unilaterally, I should say, does decided we're going to have drills. Um, so they did, but then they didn't have to turn anything into the into the state. There was no checkbox or anything like that. Pretty wild stuff, right? Because what people think right off the bat is, well, the federal government mandates school safety drills and that the state has a more rigorous process for checking on drill efficacy and things like that. And reality is, nope, nope, not at all. It pretty much defaults all the way down to the individual district level. Now, there's some good and there's some bad to that. So I'm going to talk on both sides of that. So again, schools are left to determine how they will design and plan safety drills. Okay. Um, in Wisconsin, the Department of Justice requires that the safety plan be submitted to the Department of Justice annually. So that's a little bit different, but there isn't any model of here's what the plan should look like. And so you don't also have inter reliability between schools. 
Um, so you can have this plan presented to a dis- the, to a district school board. The board can say we're good with it, and then it gets submitted, and then that's kind of the end of the story. So you don't know if it's a good plan or a bad plan. You know, you just don't know how to assess the quality of this plan. So it's a little more than than just the checklist process, which was in the past. In my state, there was a form that these schools completed, for example, for fire drills, and it would say, the, it would have the dates, you know, you would put on, you had the drill, um, how many adults and how many students participated, and then there was a small section for comments, um, literally what was left on the line, and that was it. So no learning objectives, nothing. Bare minimum, just horrible. For 2019, disgraceful. Um, that that is that's a standard, but hey, you know it is. And also, if you don't complete that, um, if you don't turn that in, if you have some drills that you skipped in winter because boy, it was cold, and we don't want to run a drill when it's zero degrees out because then the parents get upset and the teachers become ornery. Um, then they would just say we didn't do drills in December, January, February. So. Um, and no one really gets on anybody's case about that, which is wrong. So the first part of school safety is that we do things with fidelity and reliability, which means we do our drills when we are supposed to do our drills. So we do a fire drill every month and whatever the prescription is for the intruder drill, that that be carried out. And also with fidelity, not that that's three minutes and boom, we're right back to class, might be 15 minutes, and that we're running our tornado drill Um, at least twice a year, going through all of the steps in those drills. So I presented on public television in 2013 and at a map of Wisconsin and attract the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years of tornado touchdowns. And there were significantly more in the southern part of the state than in the northern part of the state. And my argument was the data should always inform your drills. So if you do have more tornadoes, for example, in your southern part of the state, if that's where I live, maybe we should have an extra drill. Would that be the worst thing if we're letting the data inform us? And as an individual school district, you could make that decision. You could look at this data. Um, Global um, Information Systems GIS and Social Vulnerability Index, SVI, data, but you could look at this data and say, it just makes more sense because we've had this around here and who knows? I mean, it's not probable, but maybe there could be like a March tornado. So shouldn't we do a drill in March? We'll do another one in April and then one right at the start of the year. So um, I think it completely makes sense. Um, So again, a a fact, a fact is schools can decide to hold themselves to higher standards And that's what I will talk about in this episode, okay? Schools can choose to hold themselves to a higher standard than what the state has put out there for a drill. So a school can say, you know what? We are going to require in our school district, so this could be a policy, that every drill has a learning objective, and that learning objective then is presented to the school board um, after the drill is conducted. And people will say, well, what is a learning objective for a drill? And actually, I didn't write about that in the book. I, I referenced it a little bit saying we have to have questions when we have school safety. Like, what are we trying to learn? 
But here are some examples of what would be a learning objective for a school safety drill. Okay, the first one, you can use the if-then model, if-then, okay. If 10% of our staff are out, then students will still find the safe locations during an intruder drill, if-then. So what you're trying to assess is, if you, if you have a day where you have a lot of staff, either at professional development or who are um, ill, and you have a substitute teachers in the building, then you're still going to have the same or similar fidelity with the drill, okay? And what you really get at with that, right, is induction, the induction process, or how well people who are new to your system understand how to carry out the safety drill. So that's very important. Induction is super important. And it's not uncommon for schools throughout a year to have a percentage of staff, you know, maybe 10%, which are, which are gone if they're at a conference or if illness strikes and things like that. It's not very common, but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I've been in schools where it's been higher than that. Um, and you want to make sure then that whoever is coming in understands or has some debriefing on the core safety procedures. And this extends also when you have, you know, staff that come in that they understand things like um, students that might have peanut allergy and peanut, you know, mitigation and things like that. But um, very, very important to understand. Let's talk about another one. Okay. So if then, if the principal is not in the school building, then all students and staff will evacuate the building in two minutes and 30 seconds for a fire drill, okay? So let's say that you've done a fire drill and typically that is what you arrive at. It's two minutes and 30 seconds, everybody is out of the building. Well, we know when, most of the times, when an administrator is in the building, um, things are run with more fidelity. Um, and the administrator obviously is in charge of that, but if we have a drill and the administrator isn't in charge. Who's the second in charge and who's on that two-way radio and checking in different locations and getting feedback of, okay, this part of the building is clear, this part of the building is clear, doing some walkthroughs, all of that. So those are those questions, right, if then, um, which I'm talking about now and kind of referenced in the book, but to actually break those down. Um, and these are critical learning objectives. You don't have to have five learning objectives for every drill. You could have one, one objective. Again, let's do this one. If the drill is during passing time, okay, if the drill is during passing time or between class periods, then all students and staff will find a safe location for a lockdown drill, okay? So it's, again, it's that if then. Um, so, you know, again, you don't need to put together five objectives for every drill. You, one objective. Let's have one objective. And we'll vary up that objective for a drill based upon the contextual situation. Again, whether it be that you're running the drill between class periods or when the administrator is out of the building or numerous staff are gone and their substitutes, whatever it is. So um, I think those are incredibly valuable. And if I did do a talk about you know, what were some things that you didn't include in the book that 
you would include, and I think the book is extremely thorough, um, extremely um, lays out a, a very cogent method to increase school safety. But if I could add a few things into the book, that would that would be one of them. It's one of the tricky things in always writing a book because you have so much real estate to occupy. And once you get beyond that, then the book gets kind of too verbose. And really, you know, these are things that can be addressed in another book. Like this, you could, I could write a book about drill fidelity and tackling drill fidelity um, and how to design terrific if-then drills. Like that's its own book. So you don't also incorporate three other books into one book just to have all of that there. That gets wordy. Administrators, parents, you know, they don't want to go through a 300-page safety book. So that's where the consideration of, you know, let's get this in 180 pages. So not everything makes it in, but some things make it then to the podcast or to articles or some other things. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Yeah, I just want to cash this check real quick. Okay, yeah, sure, that's something I can help you out with. Okay, let's take a look here. I'm sorry, what do you get this check for? I got it for working hard and then someone underpaid me for it. If you could just cash it, that'd be great. Okay, okay, sure, sure. Um, it looks like this check is from Texas. Were you in Texas? Yeah, I know where the check is from. I had it before you, remember? Okay, okay. So, uh, did you work for this company or...? Yeah, again, I work for the company and the guy wrote me a check. Are you new here or something? Do I gotta explain the whole process to you? Um. So let me tell you about the 1971, the 1971 Stanford Prison Experiment. So you might have heard about this already. It was pretty shocking, right? Yeah, a social psychology experiment that attempted to investigate the psychological effects of perceived power, focusing on the struggle between prisoners and prisoner officers. So this was set up at Stanford University. And some students were identified in this experiment as prisoners, and then others were identified as the people in, in power, or basically the guards, so prison prisoners and the guards. And it was the job of the guards to keep the prisoners in check. And this was an observation uh, kind of similar to the Milgram experiment of 1963 of seeing um, how the guards would exercise and control their power if they were perceiving that there was this greater um, oversight or organization that had their back. In this case, it would be Stanford University, and it would be the university faculty who were overseeing the experiment. So um, this experiment 
and also the Milgram experiment kind of go back to Nazi Germany with the I just followed orders defense at the Nuremberg trials. And it was interesting because both the Stanford prison experiment and the 1963 Milgram experiment, um, which had to do with administering shocks to people who were getting questions wrong. Uh, but both of those experiments revealed that people who were put in positions of power who typically did not have those positions of power in their life, um, in their activities, if they perceived that um, they had su- they were within some protective organization, you know, like the university, that they were following orders from somebody up above, uh, they turned mean pretty fast. Like they did things that they wouldn't do in normal life, like administering shocks in the Milgram experiment while somebody is yelling and screaming on the other side, don't shock me, I have a heart condition, you could kill me. And then in the prison experiment where there became such brutality and such psychological harm to the prisoners, again, these are just students, they're just students, okay? They're brought into this experiment, but they're actually put into, you know, prison cells, um, the way that the officers, you know, treat them. And, and as soon as the officers sense they have some power and control, that they're exercising this and, and just in a pretty mean way to the prisoners. Um, and so we have these, these uh, the psychological distress which occurs in both in the Stanford prison experiment, the recipients, which are the prisoners, and then also like the people, the students who are administering these punishments and who are administering this, this control over this population, that this isn't really who they are, but like they, they default in, into this primitive power role. So some real intense psychological um, damage done um, from the Stanford prison experiment. And it was after that, that with using that and a culmination of other experiments, that universities um, got together and said, we have to have a very rigid review process for any experiments with human subjects because we Uh, need to account for psychological harm as well as physical harm. So in 1974, the Institutional Review Board process was adopted by the research universities. So I went through UW-Madison. I needed to um, present my research study for Institutional Review Board approval and basically saying here would be the, the subjects. And in my case, I, I didn't have any um, student subjects that I was interviewing, but I was interviewing principals. So I had to account for, um, you know, what if I was interviewing principals about, you know, discipline, about um, situations of safety. And by doing that, I evoked, um, you know, some significant emotional responses some trauma recall from these principals. Maybe, you know, they remember a situation they had been in where the police had to be called because of, you know, student making a threat or something in that. Now, horrible that experience was for that school and for that principal to go through. And 
So you have to account for these things. And what are the supports you're going to put in? What if something happens during an interview? What if something is shared? Um, how would you look out for that person's best interests? So I went through all of those steps and did obtain IRB approval, which I believe was good for one year or like 18 months or something like that. And then I expired. Um, now, when I was out in the field doing interviews, um, I actually had one person that I was interviewing and they did um, become very emotional during halfway through the interview process. And I, it was all being recorded um, on audio. And I thought I was, you know, being, I had, I had the same set of questions for every single person. So it wasn't that I was, I was using a different set of questions. Um, and this person just was, was uh, apparently the question, as I got through the question, said I was bringing up more reflection. Um, it was a very high poverty school. There had been some instances where parents had come to the school, um, kind of very verbally aggressive with staff, also with the principal. Um, but anyway, this, this principal um, did struggle significantly with this part of the interview, and I needed to stop it and say, you know, under Institutional Review Board um, obligations, um, I am going to discontinue at this point the interview, and... Um, for the person transcribing, I will indicate at this point in time, um, none of this is to be transcribed. And then, you know, I did follow up with that person later on by phone a few days, you know, later. Um, I did check in with them the next day. And, you know, they were fine. I didn't have a, any sense that it was harm of threat, a th threat of harm to self or something like that. I mean, but... Um, I just said, do you feel like, you know, you're able to continue with these, these questions or we can just end, you know, the questions that they were able to continue. I just said, you know, there's a lot of things you start thinking about. I think we were talking about a section of when you have a number of high stakes decisions that you have to make for safety and they kind of come at you one after another after another. How do you rebound from that? So you're not patterning decisions. And then how do you uh, make sure that you are using introspection and, and, and just kind of not burning out from this. I, I mean, I have very well laid out. And I think what this person ultimately said is, I just think it, I take this home, David. Like, I, I take this home. I don't process through it. Maybe I reflect a little bit with my peers, but they're dealing with the same thing. For, so it's more like commiserating than processing and introspection. And and then kind of through that process, of saying, you know, I'm just denying myself a real opportunity to to have introspection and also to enjoy other things that I've been doing because I've just been tied up in, you know, these types of thoughts so long. And then I can come in the next day to a curriculum meeting and I'm just not there. I'm still processing what happened the day before. So, um, so that is called IRB approval process and it's in all universities and universities will say if there is a threat of, of harm to the person, um, psychologically or physically, there has to be a significant gain potential before the university would approve that. So in most cases, they're not going to approve it. They're not going to take on that liability. So you might see some of this in medical. Um, 
studies and, and then they would really go through saying, listen, this could be the complications, but this could also be the risk. So, um, but in most things which are social science, they're not going to do that. So they're not going to approve. For example, if I was to come in, um, you know, and to, this is where we have these these hyper-realistic school safety drills. If I said, I'm going to come into a school and, you know, yell and pretend that I might have, um, you know, a means to bring harm to the school or something like that as a parent, and I want people to hear that, and then after, you know, I'm going to gauge their response and your network. Well, yeah, that would never be approved, although, like, that information is important to study, right? So how do you kind of walk that line, but a university would say, oh, no, 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 we're not, this is not approved. You're not going to come in and terrify people and a potential, you know, call to the police. Um, you never know if somebody has a, a gun, are they going to pull it out to try to defend themselves and students and staff? So, um, yet we have those kinds of drills happening, which have no research base to them, right? So very uncomfortable situation, I think. But Institutional Review Board would be awesome to apply to school settings. This would be totally appropriate for schools to adopt in policy and then elevate up to saying, we are going to put ourselves through our own IRB approval for drills. And IRB is so well-defined because it's been everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And it's been out there for a number of years. But before we talk more about IRB, there's another aspect of IRB, and it's called Common Rule. Common rule is basically IRB that's been adopted by other research organizations, FDA and things like that. So it's not your universities, but it's, so common rule is very similar, basically of how you're treating your human subjects, that you're thinking of short-term and now long-term potential consequences, mostly a short-term consequence, now it's long-term. That changed this common rule. So whether schools would adopt IRB or common rule, you know, I guess it doesn't really matter. They're pretty close at this point. But common rule evolved in 2019. So right now it evolved. Some things change. One is the consent forms um, have to quickly and clearly capture the research studies. So I'm going to read this. People thinking about joining research studies face numerous decisions about whether to participate, including the potential risk and benefits of the research. Informed consent is meant to help ensure that participants or their legal representatives fully understand what is meant to participate in the trial. Thanks to one significant common rule revision, informed consent forms will have text at the top of the form that provides key information about the study. This means people will no longer have to wade through lengthy consent form language to find crucial information. So basically that the consent forms are very, 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 very clear. This is what you are consenting to participate in. So that's good because we don't want jargon and we don't want forms that are hard to navigate. I already talked about that in so many podcasts where school safety handbooks are written at a 12th grade plus level or the school safety section in student handbooks and students don't get this. So consent. Now consent in schools, a little bit different because we're not gonna ask for consent from a third grader. It's more of a passive thing that we're just gonna indicate um, that we are doing in the school if we are, um, you know, using this with our school safety drills, um, we could have students um, 
I guess a school district consider, could consider an opt-out, I would ask. I would think that they probably wouldn't. But this would be something that they would want to um, make very clear to the parents of what was happening in the drills. Okay. So here I think it changes. as In the school capacity, it's that what is happening for a school fire drill, what is happening for a school intruder drill, tornado drill, earthquake drill, whatever, is very concise and clear to the parent. Okay, my student participated in this drill, which is required by our school district. There isn't an opt-out. Like, you know, you can't opt a student with a disability out of a fire drill. Makes no sense. Couldn't do it. Um, but you want students to understand and staff to understand, parents to understand what exactly is the purpose of this, what is your learning objective, and what is happening with this drill very concisely. So when the student gets home and said, I was in a drill, and the parents said, oh my goodness, like this sounds either terrifying or tell me more, and they don't know more, that information is shared right away at the start of the year from the district to the parent. That would come in here under the new common rule. Second, less risky studies will have less paperwork. So um, currently, a study must undergo an annual review by an institution review board that is responsible for protecting the rights and welfare of research participants. Under the new rule, minimum risk studies such as those no riskier than a routine physical exam won't need this yearly check-in. That should help lighten the administrative burden for many researchers. There is a potential bump, though, Researchers still need to keep the IRB updated about any problems or other noteworthy developments, so they must be vigilant about documentation and communication to ensure research subjects are provided. Less risky. Okay, I think that falls into like the fire drills um, because largely you're just exiting the building. Um, so documenting what that involves, concisely getting it to parents. So um that's different, though, than these hyper-realistic intruder drills where somebody is in the building firing off fake rounds and people have to barricade a door and stuff. That doesn't come under this premise of a less, less risky study. So let's move on. So one more area here. Some things that need to happen quickly under the new common rule. Okay. So... Um, revising consent forms to be more understandable, like has to happen fast. Um, so also updating institutional policies and procedures. These things need to happen now. Um, and educating investigators and research staff about these changes need to happen now. So I'm talking about all of these things. At, so at the university level right now to do research involving human subjects, in 2019 is significantly different than it was in the past. Uh, when I conducted my research, um, it was a very rigorous IRB process through the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, although it would be more extensive today under the new Common Rule Acts and the changes to IRB, just meaning that you really have to be very clear on your consent forms, which I think are it's a good move. I think those are good things. So ultimately, though, what if we apply the common rule or IRB to school safety drills? Right now, it's not required of any school safety drills. This would have to happen either through a state requirement through state legislation, which I don't think will happen. Um, 
but any school district could require this under policy. And that's what I urge the superintendents that I teach in the superintendent legal issues class that I instruct. So I said, you can elevate your school safety drills to the IRB or common rule standard. You can make that decision unilaterally at your school district at that unit of measure and say, hey, this is how we're going to do things. We are going to take ourselves up to a higher level, an IRB or a common rule level, because really, why wouldn't we? Don't we owe that to our students, to our families, to our staff to have that standard when we are carrying out our school safety plans and our school safety drills? I think that's very key language. We are elevating to this standard, which is already in place in universities for research and with the FDA and so many other institutions. We're elevating ourselves to this standard. So what that does is it helps you account for the psychological and physical safety of participants. You're thinking about that ahead of time. When we run this drill, what could be the implications psychologically, the fear implications, the stress implications? What if people are trying to barricade a door and somebody breaks an arm or breaks a shoulder blade because we're just going so over the top? And these things happen. Drill litigation. Check out Dan Frosch, Wall Street Journal, drill litigation, safety drill litigation. It is just exploding, folks. So this gets you ahead of that, making sure that you know, you can do drills with fidelity. You can get the point across, but you're not going so over the top. You might say, well, you know, these intruder drills where we have somebody actually come in the building, then it makes it feel like it's real. And we have to understand how we, we have to relate to that feeling, okay? Because then it'll be muscle memory and all of this. Well, the fact is, if that was the gold standard, then we would be doing the same for tornado drills. We'd be putting kids in hallways in the crash position, firing up a barn fan and throwing handfuls of those rubber pellets, which come out of the same guns that they use in the intruder practice drills, right? And we'd be having these kids pound it with these pellets because, hey, that's what it would be like if a tornado actually hit the building. Or we'd be pumping smoke into a building and you know, putting some embers down on a floor and things like that if we really wanted to simulate what it's like if a building is on fire. But we don't do that, right? So by adding this IRB or common rule process, I think we're going to rein in some of these drills which have just gone out of control, over the top, they're unchecked. Also, it would add a learning objective for each drill, we talked about that. Remember, during passing time, students would find safe areas. Um, you know, another one which is awesome that I, no one is doing right now is um, if emergency responders are participating in the drills, then they will learn three techniques to engage with students with disabilities. So they would understand when a student with autism, for example, isn't following their verbal directive and the louder they say, we've got to go this way and the student is holding their arms up or putting their arms into their hands into their pockets, they would understand how to navigate that. We see a lot of that right now, law enforcement, specialized trainings, how to work with people in the community with mental health 
or also drug addictions, how to interface with them. But I think this is a real opportunity for schools on both sides. And then schools can take that too, of saying, you know, the school staff will learn three techniques to teach students so they can better interact with the responders. That's awesome, right? So we have learning objectives that we could put with each drill. We don't do that. It's not on, nobody has this on a state form. I've never seen this anywhere. So also then, per policy, you could have an annual review by a team, an IRB or common rule team, that it would include um, some students, could include parents, and they then would look over your drills and help with determination of the consideration of psychological or physical safety of the drill and also review of the, safe, of the learning objective of the, the drill. What was learned? Okay. Um, it doesn't mean, again, that you have to get everything right with a drill. It just means that you have some learning objective, something you're trying to study and, and, and be better informed of by doing the drill. And then also students become vested in it, and it's just not a checklist item. It's not this drill fatigue and where students are just like, oh, it's another drill, and staff, it's like, okay, and you know, you let everybody know ahead of time. It's going to be at 11.04, and then that'll give you plenty of time because we don't leave for lunch until 11.45. So, I mean, that doesn't do any good right? If you're letting everybody know and they're already in crash positions five minutes before the drill has sounded, that's not helping people. Um, so you're going to do better with your drills by having this annual review team. And maybe you make it where it's every two years that you're reviewing your, your drills, but you make it policy. It's down at your district level. That's your unit of measure. And like I just said, you're going to reduce drill apathy. There's going to be purpose for drills. Um, and you do a follow-up then with your school um, focus group of four to six students and staff, and you do a few different groups, bring them in and sit down and talk about what went well with this drill, what did you learn, what could have gone better, and then you broaden it out because that can be a little bit narrow in how students respond of, of like, you know, what makes this a safe school? Um, or if somebody were to come here, how could we help them learn the expectations of a lockdown drill? How could we do that? Um, so all of those types of things, uh, the qualitative process, to better inform uh, once these drills have occurred. So, hey, folks, that is all that I have today here on the Safety Doc Podcast. Again, a Thank you to the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California, the 405 Media, the League of Extraordinary Podcasters. You have the Safety Doc on 2 p.m. PST daily, Monday through Saturday. Also, Aaron Clary, Captain Capitalism, who has his show right after mine. And check out Larry Roberts and Readily Random. He has some different time spots on the 405 Media extraordinary, um, extraordinary shows. So radio and podcasts, go to radioandpodcast.com. Jim Mallard, he has interviewed Roger Stone. Uh, he has interviewed uh, James Fitzgerald, who was crucial in breaking the Unabomber case, identifying the Unabomber from the phrase, um, eat your cake and have it too, being able to get a search warrant for that 
but uh, phenomenal podcast on radio and podcasts. I'm very happy that I am part of that radio podcast station. So radio and podcast. Also, a shout out to Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, Sprigio.com out of Santa Barbara, California. One of the nation's leaders in school safety online reporting. They have a terrific interface that they have paid much attention to in designing for accessibility for students with special needs and also English language learners and making sure that they have a system which has a very fast response for its users and also does not push the investigation side onto the person who is submitting the information. Too many systems do that. Sprigio has been around for over 10 years. They had beta sites in Las Vegas. It's a terrific system. I fully give my support. And also, I want to give support to This School is Our School. So check it out. This School is Our School. Um, type it in. And they now have their headquarters, I believe, in Tampa, Florida. Uh, Ernest uh, MacArthur, um, one of their head folks, might be their head um, of their organization, but they have a phenomenal process for looking at root causes of Sentinel school safety events. It's a process actually uh, taken from oil rig disasters and then modified to help schools to examine um, what went on and dig down through the direct causes into the root causes. I'm going to specifically have Ernest talk about that on one of my shows. So you're going to have the gift of learning that. This is really the way to go. I have much respect for this school is our school and what they are doing to benefit schools across the country in changing the way that they look at school safety so they're not just dealing as firefighters going from fire to fire, but they are able to use a system which is extremely effective um, to dig deep and to find root causes. And if you can extinguish those root causes, those problems then don't repeat. So again, this school is our school. My name is Dr. David Proden. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to this episode of the Safety Doc Podcast. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. A must-read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, A brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. 
using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations. David contrasts the expensive window dressings, pitched to panic parents, with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.